MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broken? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail! Welcome to episode 37 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It's Sunday, August 13th, and I'm Andy McCabe. Hey, Andy, I'm Allison Gill. We have lots to discuss this week, always wondering what could possibly happen. Well, in the conspiracy against voting rights case involving the 2020 election, there's been a hearing for a protective order, and a protective order has been issued. This is a protective order over evidence, uh, and that hearing's with Judge Chutkin at the D.C. District Court. We also have an unsealed back and forth over Trump's Twitter account, and the Department of Justice is asking for a January 2nd, 2024 trial date. And down in Florida, we've got a ruling from Judge Eileen Cannon that is raising eyebrows and another delay because a co-conspirator has failed to what? Guess it, Allison. What does a co-conspirator <laughs> fail to do? Uh, get get local counsel uh, barred in the Southern District of Florida. <laughs> That's right. The one attorney in Florida was apparently busy, so they, they couldn't find one. Uh, more on that later. Um, plus, we have John Eastman asking for a postponement of his disbarment proceedings and some movement in the Trump PAC arm of the investigation as prosecutors meet with Bernie Carrick. Ah, and something else weird happened today. That we, we record this show on Fridays. Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland has made David Weiss special counsel in the Hunter Biden probe. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that at the end of the show. It's not really related to the Jack Smith special counsel investigation, but it is a special counsel investigation. And so I thought it might be worth discussing. <laughs> it, it falls within our ever increasing <laughs> scope of the many special counsels. So you sure, get a why special not? counsel and you get a special counsel. <laughs> Everybody gets a special counsel. All right. Uh, let's start with the plot to subvert the results of the 2020 election and this protective order hearing that happened at 10 a.m. Eastern on Friday. Uh, first, in the lead up, there was a back and forth filings between both parties because Judge Chutkin had ordered them to submit their availability for a protective order hearing and that she wanted the protective order hearing to take place before uh, Friday, August 11th, just this past Friday. Uh, Department of Justice was available most of the week, they said in their filing. Uh, Trump, though, wanted to postpone it until the following week. Uh, noting that Friday was lost. And we were all kind of wondering, like, what did they mean by Friday was lost? Well, we, we found out it was Judge Chutkin who said she couldn't make it on Friday. But since that was the day that uh, nobody had any conflicts, that's when she scheduled it. And that was uh, there you go. today as we're recording it. So let's talk about some things that happened in this hearing. First of all, she was fair. She was succinct. Um, she didn't show favor to either side. Uh, nor did she show fear uh, for any side. Um, she said, I routinely depart. She, you, she Here she's talking about the speediness with which she's moving this forward. I, I routinely depart from the 14 and 7 day time limits, as do many of my colleagues when it serves the interest of justice and efficiency. Uh, now, she said, Mr. Trump, like every American, has a First Amendment right to free speech, but that right is not absolute. Defendants' free speech is subject to the release conditions imposed at arraignment, and it must yield to the orderly 
administration of justice. And I really liked that she pointed that out, Andy. Yeah, you know, I feel like that was a theme here in a lot of her comments was this concept of of the orderly and unobstructed uh, pursuit of justice and preservation of the process. She, to me, her comments really indicate someone who she's very focused on getting this done, preserving the defendant's rights, but also getting this done as quickly and effectively as possible. And she's really not going to let anyone get in the way of that. The reference to the 14 and seven day time limits, that's, you know, usually when uh, one side files a motion or a request, the other side gets a certain amount of time to respond. And then the first side gets a, another certain amount of time to respond to the uh, to the response and on, so on and so forth. And those sorts of kind of uh, um, default time limits really add up over the course of a contested litigation. And I think what she's saying here is, hey, if we can get things done quicker, I'm going to chop these uh, these time limits down uh, and make sure that we can get things done uh, on a decent calendar. Yeah. And, you know, in the filings uh, for the protective order, the DOJ wanted basically everything that they're handing over to be subject to this protective order, meaning Trump isn't allowed to disseminate it or talk about it in public uh, and there's That's some right. other caveats as well. And the Trump side wanted lots of exceptions to that. And what the judge has done here has has granted and denied in part for both sides uh, coming right down the middle. Well, not right down the middle. <laughs> we'll talk about her her ruling in a second. But the DOJ got mostly what they wanted. Um, so she wants, you know, she she started off early in this hearing saying, I don't want this order to be over inclusive. I don't want to just issue a blanket protective order over information that's not sensitive. She also said, I cannot and will not factor into my decision the effects on a political campaign for either side. The existence of a political campaign is not going to factor into my decision. I intend to keep politics out of this. And that's also a very important thing that I'm glad that we got to hear from this judge, because many of the arguments coming from the Trump side and that will come from the Trump side is that I'm running a campaign. You have to show deference to that. And she is now indicating right off the bat that she is not going to consider any of those arguments in any of her decisions. That's absolutely right. And she actually even referred at one point to uh, the fact that he's running for president as his, quote, day job. <laughs> like, like, that's your daily gig. That's fine. Do what you got to do. But this proceeding uh, will cut through that when necessary. Yeah, you're not the first guy with a job to be before me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's been there were a lot of comments in there that said, you know, where she would say she would say something and then say, like any criminal defendant, or mm -hmm. you know, Mr. Trump is a criminal defender, defendant in this criminal matter. So she is really trying to hold the line on saying, hey, any person, any citizen of this country, any person in this country charged with an offense, uh, is going to have to show up at court and go through the process and uh, deal with the court's timelines, no matter what job they have, whether that's. Uh, you know, parking cars at Mar-a-Lago or running for president. So, um, yeah, really, I really think she she laid down a very fair and clear uh, kind of rule so far. Yeah. And some of the things that Trump wanted to be considered not sensitive, meaning he should be able to share it with the world, uh, which was his stated goal, by the way, in the filings, which I thought was odd. Um, but the judge was like, no, I, I can't approve your request that witness statements or audio interviews or transcripts should not be considered sensitive. And she also 
denied Trump's request that basically anybody should be able to view the evidence from discovery. Quote, right. volunteer attorneys and other non-retained lawyers. Um, and she asked uh, the Trump attorney, Lauro, to submit a more narrowly tailored proposal. Quote, it allows just about anybody. Uh, I live in Washington. Anyone is a, a consultant. <laughs> and she notes that that language would permit unindicted co-conspirators to see the discovery because uh, most, if not all of them, are lawyers and non-retained attorneys in this in this case. And so um, I thought, you know, she's basically laying out um, things that she's going to not deny from the Trump side. Uh, and then she goes on to talk about things she's going to allow uh, from the DOJ side, which is what sort of creates this denied and granted in part, uh, denied in part, granted in part ruling that she puts out. She also said Trump can review materials by himself. This was something that Donald Trump wanted was to be able to look at some of this discovery alone. And the DOJ wanted his lawyers to be there. And so she split the baby. She said Trump can review the materials, but counsel must review any notes Trump takes to ensure no personal identifying information is kept. He can't have access to electronic devices or copy machines when he's reviewing it. Because, you know, DOJ was like, he's going to copy this, take photos of it and put it up on the Truth Social. So she sort of said, all right, he can't just do it without any supervision. He, there, there has to be some. And here, here are the conditions. So she laid those out. And then some interesting uh, numbers that came out too. Wyndham, who is the lead ca- prosecutor uh, working at Jack Smith's office for this particular case, says the first batch of discovery is about 11.6 million pages or files, which are load ready, uh, along with some search warrant returns. And he said, our goal is to have discovery substantially completed by August 28th, which is the hearing date at which she will set the trial date. Uh, Another quote by the judge, I intend to ensure the orderly administration of justice in this case, as I would with any other case, which is like what you just talked about, Andy. He's just a criminal defendant like any other. Even arguably ambiguous statements from parties to their counsel can threaten this process. So because, you know, Trump... Trump's lawyers were saying, well, maybe in a debate or something, he just accidentally spits something out. And she's like, no, 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 you that's mm-mm. Mm-mm, that's not OK. Um, these are the yeah. rules. They must be followed. And that's when John Laro said, oh, he'll follow the rules, I promise. And she's like, that's good to hear. And <laughs> here's my favorite quote from the hearing uh, from the judge. In addition, the more a party makes inflammatory statements about this case, which could taint the jury pool, the greater the urgency will be that we proceed to trial quickly. I will take whatever measures are necessary to safeguard the integrity of these proceedings. And I love that she's hooked his inflammatory statements to the speediness of the trial. That's like, the, the more you talk, the faster we go, buddy. Yeah, I mean, it's classic. It's like such a clear uh, acknowledgement of what is really compelling him right now. She knows what they're all about. She knows they're trying to slow everything down. The last thing they want is for this this case to go to trial before the election takes place. And she's literally using that desire to kind of, you know, as a, in the the old carrot and stick uh, uh, metaphor, it's the, it's the stick now that might help him keep his mouth shut. So uh, really interesting uh, use of uh, uh, connecting those two themes there. Yeah. I I liked that a lot. Um, Very clever. And then we got the ruling here and here's the, the long and short of it. The judge rules that the United States may designate the following materials it produces to defense counsel as sensitive. Uh, A, materials containing personally identifying information, 
as identified in Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 49.1. B, Rule 6 material, including grand jury subpoena returns, witness testimony, and related exhibits presented to the grand jury. C, materials obtained through sealed search warrants and 2703D orders. And I want to talk Mm -hmm. to you about that when we talk about the trial uh, date that uh, the DOJ filed. D, sealed orders obtained by the government's filter team related to this case. E, recordings, transcripts, interview reports, and related exhibits of witness interviews. And F, materials obtained from other governmental entities, which is very interesting little note there. Seems like anything that comes from any other trial or civil proceeding, criminal or otherwise, civil, you know, civil or criminal proceeding, is also considered sensitive because it's part of an open and ongoing investigation. So it seems like the government got everything they wanted here. The thing that is not protected is publicly available stuff right? and stuff that the Trump team already has. That's right. And, you know, I, I again, like I'm uh, um, there's really nothing negative to say about a ruling um, in the motion papers earlier in the week, the thing that really kind of caught my eye in terms of what the government was asking for that quite honestly seemed like a bit of an overreach was this position that everything they turned over should be considered sensitive and therefore covered by the protective order. And in the Trump's Trump team's response, they very, uh, you know, after checking the necessary nonsensical political boxes about this is a trial over First Amendment <laughs> rights, which clearly it's not. Um, they got into the argument basically saying everything the government hands over isn't by definition sensitive, which I think was the right way for them to argue it. I think she's acknowledged that here. Like the simple fact that the government handed it to the Trump side doesn't make it sensitive. However, each one of these A through F points that she uses to define sensitive materials, these are all the same things that the government called out in their motion to say, for example, the following would be sensitive. So they got what they want, but they also got cut back a little bit in terms of uh, uh, the somewhat overbroad request. So everybody walks away getting something and losing a little something. Yeah, I think this is more in favor of uh, DOJ's request because Trump had asked for witness testimony and all that, you know, to to not be yep. sensitive. And she's like, nah, no, bro. Sorry, that's yeah. sensitive information. Grand jury materials, personally identif- uh, identifiable information. And uh, something else the, the judge said is that the government doesn't have to stamp every single page of sensitive material with a sensitive stamp or a confidential stamp, which would have taken uh, who knows how long. I mean, they probably would have got it done, but they can do that by groups of of information like here this whole file of witness testimony one stamp on the front that says this is all sensitive for example so i thought that that was uh, another good bit of findings by this judge so very very good fast succinct fair just nobody is above the law type ruling and and hearing and i thought it went i thought it went well for for the government yeah agree absolutely agree all right we have a lot more to get to but we have to take a quick break everybody stick around we'll be right back Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. 
Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, This past Thursday, we got the Department of Justice's filing requesting a trial date of January 2nd, 2024, with jury selection to begin December 11th. Again, this is Judge Tanya Chutkin. Uh, She gave Trump's team until Monday, tomorrow, to make its own request and has scheduled, as we said previously, a hearing on August 28th to set the trial date. Uh, And, you know, Trump had made a quick filing saying that there should be no days counting towards speedy trial, the 70-day speedy trial rule between now and that hearing on August 28th. And the, the, the January 2nd trial date purports with that request. So that would probably be dismissed as moot, that request. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the trial date filing, the prosecutor said it's difficult to imagine a public interest stronger than the one in this case in which the defendant, the former president of the United States, is charged with three criminal conspiracies intended to undermine the federal government, obstruct the certification of the 2020 presidential election, and disenfranchise voters. Trial in this case is clearly a matter of public importance, which merits in favor of a prompt resolution. And Andy, I had guessed that they would go for December. And, you know, that's when jury selection begins. Uh, But January 2nd is um, right before the Iowa caucuses. And then we still have the Eugene trial scheduled for January 15th. But I'm sure Robbie Kaplan might defer if, in fact, that trial date holds. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that one might not stick anyway. That could die of its own uh, of its own momentum, but between now and then, certainly. And then, typically, civil trials, civil court proceedings will defer to or take a backseat to pressing criminal proceedings. Um, uh, it's kind of a very general way of stating that, but uh, usually they have to be connected in some way. But but typically, you see that happen. Um, yeah, I think that January. Uh, I think the January ask is, it's aggressive, it's fast, but it's also possible the way they have the indictment constructed 
I think it shows us um, a little bit, not not in a definitive way, but it certainly suggests that they're probably that they may not be looking at adding any def- any additional defendants to this uh, to this case because the further along we get, obviously towards a close trial date, the harder it is to add in a new party who would then have to go through discovery and have their own opportunity for pretrial motions and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I wasn't I wasn't shocked by it. I knew they'd try to keep the pedal down. This is definitely doing that, um, but with a four to six week. Uh, prediction and trial length, which is what I understand was part of the submission. You know, it's possible this thing could, if she holds them on on a quick schedule, this thing could in fact go that early. Yeah, and, and I sort of figured he would he would target December uh, with his eyes kind of on March with perhaps yep. potential delays. But it's interesting here. Uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Molly Gaston had said in this filing, you know, this gives. Trump's defense two months from the indictment to make legal arguments and up to five months to review evidence in the case. Because you know Trump's going to say, we have 11.6 million pages to review. We're going to need more than than this amount of time. But five months seems a reasonable amount of time to to review that. But I could also see the judge saying, yeah, they might need more than five months and maybe adding another month onto this. Because February yeah. is the civil trial, is another civil trial. And March is Alvin Bragg. So either of those can be uh, adjourned in favor of this criminal trial. So I think probably whatever date she sets um, is going to take precedent. This trial will take precedent over any of the civil suits that are set to go in the beginning of next year with the documents case not set to go until May. And I'm sure that'll be delayed as well. So yeah. That's kind of where I'm at uh, with, you know, with my thoughts uh, on this particular argument. Now, again, Trump has until Monday to file his um, when he wants the trial. And he, you know, he had said, uh, their lawyer said in court, well, it took them three and a half years to bring charges. Well, that's mathematically incorrect. Um, (laughs) It took two and a half. (laughs) Which Gaston pointed out in her her filing. Yeah. I mean- you know, they're, my guess is they're going to ask, we've, I say, wait, that's a mistake. The government has asked for January. Um, I would suggest that the Trump team will probably ask for February of 2028. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they're going to throw the ball as far down the field as they possibly can. They're going to get some preposterous thing, or maybe they'll say no date at all. Maybe yeah, they'll say, like in the documents it, case, they may, they ask yeah. for no date just sometime after the election, on into perpetuity until the election is done because of my day job, you know. Yeah, indefinite postponement. But there's no way she bites on that. I think all indications from the other order we just went over are that she's going to try to keep them on a tight schedule, even if she knows that they're unlikely to hit the original trial date because things typically get drawn out a little bit more than you would like. Um, I think she's going to put the trial date on in a pretty aggressive schedule just to keep them moving forward uh, to kind of maintain discipline in the calendar. And then if she's got to move it back a few weeks or so as they get closer, she has the room to do that. That would be my guess at this point. But I should also say, G, I think really smart for the government to argue here as Molly Gaston did in her moving papers, that the speedy trial uh, uh, rights are, of course, the defendant's rights to go to trial in a quick manner, to have the charges uh, against them resolved in a clear and convincing way, not have it hanging over your head forever. 
but it's also, and very importantly in this case, it addresses the right that the public has to have a highly significant matter like this resolved quickly. That is in the interest of justice. And, you know, never more so than in this case, when you could, and I think the government did here, make the argument that the public has a right to understand what happened in 2020 before they go into the polling uh, booths in, uh, in uh, November of 24 to make their decision of who they want to vote for the next time. So um, I think those arguments are compelling and um, we'll see what sort of effect they have on the judge. And uh, Molly Gaston also preempted another Trump argument. She's like, look, they're probably going to say we need more to, than two months to file and consider our pretrial motions. And Molly Gaston is like, no, you don't. You outlined them all on five Sunday shows a week ago. <laughs> we know exactly what motions, venue. We know you have an issue with the two different grand juries or whatever. Uh, no, wait, that's the documents case. I can't keep all of the crimes straight in my head here. But, you, you know, you talked about a motion to dismiss, a motion to change venue. He wants to do it in West Virginia because there'll be a more diverse jury in West Virginia, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> anyway, uh, it, it's so she she preempted a lot of those arguments. I like that she did that, uh, you know, kind of anticipating what Trump's legal team is going to say. Of note in this filing uh, is that there are SEPA considerations, right? That's the Confidential Information Protection Act. That's right. That's big down in, in Mar-a-Lago in the documents case because there's 32 classified documents. But it says here, prosecutors flagged that the case might require potential disclosure of some classified information, but said that the minimal amount in question could be addressed through a parallel schedule that would not change this proposed schedule, in part because one of Trump's lawyers possesses the necessary clearance. Like, you already got it because he's crying right. in Florida. Uh, perhaps, you know, we were trying to game out what this could be. I've seen a lot of uh, interesting theories. Uh, I think this could be, do you, you remember when Rudy Giuliani wanted the Department of Defense to seize voting machines and the Department of Defense was like, we can't unless there's proof of foreign interference in those machines. And so that's mm -hmm. when Sidney Powell came up with the, uh, you know, Venezuela thing and somebody else brought up uh, Italian satellites beaming into the voting machines or whatever. Yep. But at the time, Patel was working at the DOD and his buddy, Trump ally Michael Ellis, had been installed at the NSA as general counsel. And, and maybe maybe they were sent on some fool, you know, fool's errand to find out about foreign interference. And, and maybe there's something classified there or it could be some classified executive orders about how to do you know handle emergency insurrection situations i mean i don't know but it looks like there's very minimal sepa information in this trial and they say this can go on at a parallel thing uh, in plenty of time yeah you know one of the uh very basic kind of thresholds for in considering whether or not to classify something is typically communications or information that are relevant to the, quote, foreign relations of the United States have to be classified. It's usually secret, not typically top secret, but nevertheless, uh, that, that could go either way. Um, so I could imagine a situation like this when, you know, maybe Department of State or even potentially CIA were reaching out to foreign governments as they would have had to have done in a very kind of... Uh, um, due diligence sort of way to say, hey, we received this 
complaint or information about X? Have you ever heard of, you know, Italian space lasers changing your elections? <laughs> Fully expecting a, a quick negative reply, which likely they got. But the simple fact that you asked and the country that you asked is identified in that communication, that that would end up classifying that communication as at, at, at least the secret level. So, there are probably very small, likely not very relevant or important classified uh, materials in this case, um, but should, there were probably a few here and there that they could resolve pretty pretty quickly with a basic SEPA process. Yeah, and there could also be um, that could also be used as proof that Sidney Powell lied to donors uh, when she was fundraising for her PAC, which has been under investigation since September of 2021, like way early on. Um, and I have a quick question for you about mm -hmm. co-conspirators, because you had mentioned earlier that adding co-conspirators to this case could delay it further. If Jack Smith wants to charge these co-conspirators with crimes, can they do that in a separate case or would they have to marry the two or would he have to wait until the resolution of this case to bring those charges separately. Do you know what I mean? Because if I'm if I'm Trump and all of a sudden there's a new indictment separate from this one for the same criminal activity from my co-conspirators, I would file a motion to consolidate those cases so that mm -hmm. I could get some more delay out of this. And I would I would have a hard time in my head arguing against the consolidation of these cases since it's the same criminal behavior uh, and they're all the same thing. What what do you know? What can you tell us about that? Because I don't know a lot about bringing separate charges and not having them consolidated or having to wait until it's resolved on one side before you bring the new charges. Yeah, it's a little weird, quite honestly, to see it done this way, where you indict the person at the top of the conspiracy and you don't indict any of the co-conspirators, you know, beneath them. Uh, we know we've already talked about there are a lot of strategic reasons why we believe Jack Smith did it that way in this indictment. To keep it very clean, to keep it very Trump focused, to be, you know, to you get know, it done to fast. get it done quicker, right? So it's not common, but I think that's probably why I did it. Having having made that decision, and if getting it done quickly was one of his motivating um, considerations, I would think that he would he may choose not to bring any charges against the co-conspirators until this case is resolved. Um, you can do it that way. Imagine. Imagine an organized crime case against the leadership. I was going to say like backwards, like where yeah, you want to get you, the co-conspirators done before you get the big guy. Yeah, typically you do, but if you imagine, let's say you're going to finally bring your case against the leadership of an organized crime family and you have the boss and a couple of underbosses indicted and and as part of that big RICO case, you, you uh, introduce evidence of maybe 10 different crimes, maybe five homicides, some extortions, things like that. It is possible that you would focus that case on that group, take it to trial, get your convictions or whatever you get, and then later go back and do what we call like mop-up cases. So maybe one of those homicides there, you later find out through the course of the trial or something who one of the drivers was on the homicide. You go back and arrest that guy, you charge him with the conspiracy, and you bring that case. That would be a similar situation to what we're talking about here. You're coming back after the fact pursuing a full case against a co-conspirator who was not indicted in the initial indictment. There's nothing stopping the government from doing that. It kind of drags things out for the government a little bit, but uh, you could imagine that doing that here. 
I think your point is well taken. If they bring the co-conspirator cases separately before this case is resolved, I think Trump would be in a good position to make that sort of argument for consolidation, which I think is why it's, that's unlikely to happen. But the opposite side of the coin is also true. If you indicted one of the co-conspirators this week and you join them to this case, it's possible that that person can file a motion for severance because if they, if they are no longer um, you know, in line with Trump in terms of legal strategy, they might decide, hey, my chances are much better if I'm not sitting at the defense table with Donald Trump. And so they push to have their cases severed, uh, which Trump would likely then oppose because he wants as many people there as he can get because it makes it more chaotic and takes more time. So it's very a lot of competing um, elements of potential trial strategy here, which Jack Smith could probably avoid by just proceeding with the indictment he has for right now and then coming back and doing the rest later. The fact that it has a nickname, mop-up cases, tells me that it happens. <laughs> so that's, it does, it does. You usually don't have a nickname for something unless you unless you uh, have seen it before. And then could you perhaps indict those co-conspirators under seal and just let it sit so that the statute of limitations clock, if there is one, is stopped? I suppose you could, but that is really rare. Um, of course, this situation is not like any other. So really anything could happen here. Uh, typically in regular criminal matters, you don't indict someone and then keep the indictment under seal and, and essentially don't, you know, hold yourself back from proceeding on it. Because if you do that against a normal criminal, you run the risk of them, uh, uh, engaging in further criminal activity while you had an indictment and could have arrested and put that person in jail. Mm. So you're taking on a lot of risk by doing that. Typically you only see that in like terrorism cases where the terrorist is actually located overseas. So you can't get them anyway. So you might indict them and then keep that indictment under seal until you have an opportunity to actually capture that person. But for people here located in the United States, what typically happens is when you're indicted, that indictment gets put into NCIC and there is a warrant issued for your arrest and then you're, you're picked up uh, as quickly as possible. Yeah. And the dates of the criminal behavior for all of the co-conspirators here are between uh, November 14th, 2020 and January 7th, 2021, which would put any statute of limitations, if there is one, into the 2025-2026 year. So that's right. I, we aren't even really close to that. So uh, my guess, if I were Jack Smith, I would hold off on indicting these co-conspirators until after this case is, is resolved just to keep it clean. Um, but who knows what he'll do? And I, I, and he's way smarter than me, so maybe he's got yeah. a better idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see what the happens. The downside of doing it the way he did was, I think, it, I, I think you run a potential like public relations problem. It really runs the risk of emphasizing this this um, perspective that well, this is political because you've only gone after Trump and all these other people did all these bad things too, but you're not charging them, and it sort of makes it look, even though substantively this is not the case. You could make you could create the narrative that this that perception adds to this allegation of of uh, political you know purpose behind the prosecution. Well, he's already done it. He's already crossed that Rubicon, and people are making that argument. And you either believe it or you don't, depending likely on where you sit along the political spectrum. So uh, I don't think he's concerned about that at all. He's just going to go forward and do this in the best way 
for the schedule of the trial. And that seems to be what he's how he's making those calls. Um, and lastly here, uh, DOJ included in its discovery list something called a 2703D order. Uh, that's when a court orders a third-party provider of electronic communications to disclose their subscriber records. And I talked about this a while back when the January 6th committee was trying to get a bunch of communications between people. And I said, you know what's cool? DOJ doesn't really have to go through this whole process because of something called a 2703D order. Uh, and so I found it interesting that that that's part of discovery and that the DOJ used that tool in their tool belt to be able to get a lot of these communications. 2703D orders are super um, helpful to the government. It's kind of like a step above a subpoena and one step below a search warrant, right? So you don't have to go in front of a judge and prove probable cause um, like you would in a search warrant. So they're a little bit easier to work with. They carry a little more weight. So the service providers, the email providers, whoever it might be, um, are more likely to kind of respond quickly to them and not challenge you on them, which is, has become more and more of a problem. And they do get you a lot of uh, information. They get you essentially all the subscriber account information. So you understand the name and email address and credit card information, anything that's associated with that account. You also can get the metadata. If it's a, let's say it's an email account, you get the to's and from's and you get the IP addresses where the subscriber was sending and receiving email from. Uh, you get the dates and times of those exchanges. So you don't get content. You wouldn't get the substance of the email messages, but you get all the metadata around it and all of the subscriber and account information. And that stuff can be very, very helpful. Yeah, I can point you exactly to where to look for that kind of content That's right. and information. Um, and this week, we learned about a previously sealed search warrant for Donald Trump's Twitter account from the special counsel's office. This happened. There was a flurry of sealed filings over an executive privilege issue. You and I talked about it back in January, February, March. This is what that was. This was uh, in January, a special counsel obtained a search warrant for Donald Trump's Twitter account. There was a privilege battle, which would seem to point to the fact that one of the things Jack Smith was looking for was communications, right? Or direct yep. messages from Twitter, because that's what privileges is about executive privileges about communications. Here's a quote. The company asserted that compliance with the warrant before resolution of the motion to vacate or modify the non-disclosure order would preclude the former president from asserting executive privilege to shield communications made using his Twitter account. That's in the one of the rulings here from the from the appellate court. And so it looks like Twitter direct messages from Trump's account were involved here, at least one of the things that Jack Smith uh, was looking for, or it might have just been one of the arguments Twitter was making against handing it over. Uh, other things that can be gleaned, though, from access to his Twitter was stuff that you were just mentioning. Geolocation, um, logins, IP addresses, things that can prove it was Trump who tweeted those things and not, you know, Jason Miller or, you know, any any of his mm -hmm. of his aides. And you know, the indictment, the verbiage in the indictment is that the defendant tweeted, not it was tweeted from the defendant's account. And so I right. think his ability to be able to state that um, with confidence maybe comes from some of the information that they got through this Twitter search warrant. Now, Elon Musk fought the search warrant, citing executive privilege. 
but lost that battle. Uh, and Elon, just as a side note, has recently made it very difficult to see other people's DMs. He tweeted out, you know, we're going to encrypt DMs and set them on fire. No one will ever read them. And it was right around the time that this happened. So that's funny. Uh, and then also um, took away the ability to send DMs to people that you don't follow. But Twitter, uh, for their noncompliance, was held in contempt and fined $350,000. That's $50,000 for the first day, and then it doubles on the second day and doubles on the third day. And after three days, he he caved. He said, uncle, handed over the stuff, and uh, he now has to pay a $350,000 fine. Um, he also, by the way, filed a case to block an order barring Twitter from telling Trump about the search warrant. Uh, Smith's off- office argued uh, and the lower court judge agreed that if Twitter notified Trump of the warrant's existence, it would put the investigation at risk. Uh, Twitter argued that by keeping the warrant secret, uh, he would be unable to shield communications made using his Twitter account, executive privilege, right? And <laughs> he's like, I should be able to tell him so he can assert executive privilege over these communications. And just now Trump in response said, "This is I just found out this week, right? Just found out that crooked Joe Biden's DOJ secretly attacked my Twitter account making it a point not to let me know about this major hit on my civil rights. Um, Then from the court, it says the court found probable cause to search the Twitter account for evidence of criminal offenses. And moreover, the district court found that there were reasonable grounds to believe that disclosing the warrant to the former president would seriously jeopardize the ongoing investigation by giving him an opportunity to destroy evidence, change patterns of behavior, or notify Confederates. I like that they use the term Confederates there. And I just kind of want to bring something up real quick, because he recently went on an interview and said and accused the January 6th Select Committee of deleting and destroying evidence. And, you know, I speak Trump pretty well. And what Mm -hmm. that means is that Trump has deleted and destroyed evidence. And I don't know if it's these Twitter messages. I don't know if, if Elon told him about it and he just he deleted some of these messages. I don't know if he's talking about the surveillance footage of Mar-a-Lago, but something's going on. And I think we might be about to find out about it. So I just want to put some beans on that, put that out into the universe. Well, I don't know why you would think something's going on. I mean, after all, this is the guy (laughs) who, when confronted with a subpoena, uh, told his attorney, like, couldn't you just take these files and pluck out the bad ones? This is the guy who who already... He's been indicted for for obstruction and then charged with obstructing the evidence of the obstruction. So, yeah, I know. I think it's a fair, uh, it's a well-founded fear that he might have taken some, if he thought there was something bad in the Twitter account, he might have set the Twitter headquarters on fire to destroy it uh, if if he thought that was necessary. Um, Yeah, I, I think, you know, this is kind of the the ratcheted up version of what we were just talking about before. So, you know, you go beyond 2703D order when you're actually in front of the judge asking for a search warrant. And that search warrant, the difference is you get everything you get with the 2703D plus content and actual geolocation and things like that. Um, So that's clearly what they got here. There's no question if they didn't want content or they didn't suspect there was some relevant content in the account, they wouldn't have gone in for the court order. So whether that content was in the form of a concern about DMs or whatever else, that's what the choice to go in front of the judge and argue for the search warrant indicates that they at least wanted to have the legal authority to grab whatever content was there. 
Um, and again, I think it's important to point out that these are this is for historical content. This is for uh, DMs and messages that he'd made in the past and were stored or archived on Twitter servers. If you want real-time content, that's a totally different category. That's uh, in this context would be a, a Title III order to do electronic surveillance. That's not what we're talking about here. But really fascinating kind of battle. It's good to see this thing. Kind of, uh, we had, as you mentioned, we'd been curious about this so many months ago, and all this stuff is coming out into the open now, which is fascinating and uh, gives us great stuff to talk about. Yeah, my feeling is is that Jack Smith was just looking for ways to prove that Trump had actually composed and sent those tweets that were mentioned in in the indictment, and that the communications part seems like it was just Elon Musk trying to find a way to shield these from being handed over or to be able to tell Trump about it so that he could decide whether or not he wanted to assert executive privilege. But we'll see. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming we'll learn more about this as it goes along. But again, a lot of it might just be lost to time uh, and and or what's called grand jury secrecy. <laughs> we might never hear about it. Yep. And one real qu last quick point, uh, breaking news story from this week before we head to a break. A new raft of subpoenas has gone out from Jack Smith's office in the fraudulent elector scheme. So that investigation and the and the grand jury met this week, uh, this past week as well in D.C. on this case. So this is still an ongoing investigation, might be related to the co-conspirators, might be related to something completely different. Uh, we will find out either soon or maybe after this whole Trump case is resolved <laughs> in the interest of, <laughs> of getting it done before the election. All right. We have to take a quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I wanna act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. 
Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, let's head down to Florida. Um, This week we saw De Oliveira's arraignment was postponed a second time due to, once again, lack of local counsel. So his, uh, I guess this will be the third strike at the arraignment, is now (laughs) set for August 15th. And Judge Cannon has ordered it to be completed by August 25th, which is the date of their next hearing. Now, how do you set a date for the 15th and say, but it must be completed by the 25th? I thought when you set a date for the 15th, that was the date it had to be completed by. But apparently she's leaving him some extra time because uh, she's very familiar with defendants in this matter just being completely unable to find and retain uh, basic criminal uh, attorney uh, assistance. So... Here we go. He's going to end up with, if he manages to push it to the 25th, he's going to end up with the day that he actually asked for in its first non-functioning arraignment and having uh, essentially created a one-month delay in getting himself officially charged. Mm-hmm. And uh, something else that happened on Monday, uh, Judge Aileen Cannon ordered that two sealed filings submitted by the DOJ, Jack Smith, be struck from the record and questioned the, quote, legal propriety of using an out-of-district grand jury proceeding to continue to investigate and or to seek post-indictment hearings. Uh, The filings concerned a motion brought by DOJ arguing that an attorney for Trump aide and alleged co-conspirator Walt Nauda has potential conflicts of interest. That's Woodward, right? Because he represents other individuals who could be called as witnesses in the case. And while Cannon gave Jack Smith until August 22nd to explain the situation, uh, many legal experts immediately pointed out that first, the reason is obvious. And second, the judge's line of questioning should raise some red flags. This is what I talked about raising some eyebrows at the beginning of the show. Andrew Weissman, uh, who, you know, former uh, Mueller prosecutor, you see him all the time on MSNBC. He noted that this was an argument made on Fox News by Trump lawyers and that somehow... Uh, Judge Aileen Cannon saw that and just took it upon herself to to enter this order. However, this argument was also made, what he doesn't say, was also made by Woodward, Stanley Woodward, and Trump's attorneys in a July 18th hearing. So she has heard these arguments elsewhere uh, other, other than Fox News. Now, Joyce Vance noted that Cannon's actions, quote, may tee up the issue of her fitness on the case. Uh, and I'm wondering uh, what you thought about this, because something that Andrew Weissman also points out is this case could have been brought either in D.C. or in in Florida, the Southern District of Florida. They went with Southern District of Florida. But there's shouldn't be any question as to why they were there was a grand jury in D.C. and then and then brought down to Miami. No, no, not at all. And I mean, like, look, let's be obvious. The issue of her fitness has been teed up since the very beginning of this case with her somewhat illogical and baseless rulings on the review of the classified material immediately after the search warrant. So, you know, we don't have to dredge that whole situation up again. Our our listeners are certainly well aware of it, but like I think most of us have been coming into this phase of the case really watching how she'll rule on a number of these 
issues, not usually, I, I speak for myself here, not so concerned about issues of bias as I am concerned about issues of competence. And this one really, I think, makes folks nervous about uh, how that question gets answered because, yeah, as we talked about last week, that the conflict of interest issues here with Stanley Woodward are numerous and multiple, right? And they go in a bunch of different directions. There were some great graphics in the New York Times over the last week or so, kind of laying out all the many complicated conflicts between uh, lawyers who are being paid for by the Trump PACs, representing multiple defendants and witnesses in these different criminal cases. So, yeah, I, I am really, I was really taken aback by her comments about not just the grand jury issue, but by questioning the legal propriety of using the out of district grand jury. Like, that is not even within the scope of her concern, right? And prosecutors have the authority and the discretion to put evidence in front of grand juries wherever they see fit, really, as long as that evidence gets in front of the final grand jury in the place where the crime was committed and will be charged. I mean, that's just how they do it. But again, you know, maybe this is all brand new for her, which is kind of concerning. <laughs> Something else that's not in the purview of her concern is Trump's request to be able to have a skiff down at Mar-a-Lago. Not necessarily to store documents, but to discuss classified documents uh, for, uh, I guess, the need for convenience. Um, my first thought went to Jack Teixeira trying to make this request. Hey, uh, can I just, can we do this at my house? You know, I'm kind of, yeah. Jack Teixeira, by the way, indicted for dis dissemination. The Air National Guardsman decided for, indicted for dissemination of, of classified material, top secret material. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that just seems ridiculous to me. Uh, I, I I have a feeling for some reason Judge Cannon might grant this, but only the national security agencies, or I, I should say the intelligence community, can determine and do that, right? I mean, she doesn't have any authority to order that, does she? You know, I can't... Well, I was going to say I can't imagine she does. Federal judges have a ton of discretion and pretty much get away with whatever they order unless it's appealed and, and reversed. Um, th this request is, is insane. It's, uh, it's like, you know, the guy who gets charged with uh, grand theft auto asks the judge if he can borrow her car. I mean, like, this is what Trump was charged with for irresponsibly and illegally maintaining classified at his residence. So his response to defending himself is to come in and ask the judge, can I have more classified at my residence? I mean, I, on principal grounds alone, I can't imagine why a judge would go along with this. And then you layer in the national security concerns. But yeah, I, you know, who knows what she's going to come up with. Yeah. She could try to split the baby and say, okay, because there are things, there are um, portable skiffs, you know, when a principal travels to uh, even foreign locations, their security de detail can basically set up a skiff inside of a uh, hotel room with their, you know, I can't get in too great a detail describing it here, but it's <laughs> both a physical construction, but also uh, you have people in there who are assigned to kind of literally keep their hands and eyes on that stuff 24-7 so that nothing can happen mm -hmm. to it. So, you know, you could imagine coming up with some sort of a requirement like that, but then forcing the defense to pay for it, which would be not, uh, you know, that's that's what it would cost a lot in terms of personnel mm -hmm. and resources and everything else. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this one's a coin flip to see where she'll come out on that one. Yeah, we'll see what she says. 
And you just mentioned uh, confusion about uh, in the New York Times with their charts about witnesses having different lawyers being paid by the Trump PAC. We have some information on uh, the that the invest investigation into the Trump PAC uh, or PACs, I should say, is still ongoing, uh, including a five hour meeting between Bernie Carrick and special counsel in a closed door interview. On Monday, with with Carrick, investigators asked multiple questions about the Save America PAC's enormous fundraising haul in the weeks between Election Day and the January 6th attack on the Capitol. That's according to Carrick's lawyer, Tim Parlatore. So, mm, grain of salt. Yeah. Carrick, who served as a New York City police commissioner when Giuliani was mayor, he helped Rudy in his efforts to contest the results of the election. Now, months after Trump left office, Giuliani's allies urged him to use the Save America PAC funds to pay Giuliani for his post-election legal work. And also prosecutors asked about Boris Epstein, who is the lawyer who worked with Trump after Election Day and who now works on his campaign as his in-house counsel. Now, the investigators asked multiple questions about Justin Clark, too, who was deputy campaign manager of Trump's re-election bid in 2020. Carrick described to the special counsel's team a contentious phone call where Rudy yelled at Justin Clark and called him a liar. So that all that sort of stuff came up. So it could be questions about where the PAC money is going and, and you know, um, but also, I mean, Bernie Carrick's going to have a lot of information about Boris Epstein, who could be, but we haven't confirmed, co-conspirator six in the, in the coup indictment. So we'll see what happens there. But um, that investigation into Trump's PACs is also still ongoing. And we could see separate charges there. Uh, since it's not the same criminal set of criminal behavior, if it's, you know, wire fraud and defrauding donors, that could be brought, I think, as a separate case on a different timeline that doesn't matter as much as the, the coup trial. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's kind of a classic example of one you could do as a mop-up case. You go back and um, kind of isolate the PAC activity and and charge whatever you've got there. And some folks who were uh, charged in the first indictment could see themselves charged again. Um, or it could be a whole a whole new collection of co-conspirators and defendants. Okay, so uh, I think maybe this is our one of our as we're getting down to the bottom of the show here. Um, we should jump over to California just for a minute, AG, where John Eastman this week has asked a California judge to postpone disbarment proceedings lodged against him, saying he's increasingly concerned that he's about to be criminally charged by Special Counsel Jack Smith. Quote, recent developments in the investigation have renewed and intensified Eastman's concerns that the federal government might bring charges against him. You think so? <laughs> um, Miller said the growing concern about criminal charges might prompt Eastman to assert his Fifth Amendment rights during disbarment hearings. So it's a bit of a threat there to the committee, I guess. If you go forward against me now, you might have to deal with my Fifth Amendment invocation. Yeah, However, and Miller, by the way, is his attorney representing him in his disbarment proceeding. That's right. That's right. But the bar authorities don't seem to be buying it because they've charged Eastman with multiple violations of professional rules and ethics, as well as violations of the law in his effort to upend the certified results of the 2020 election. California authorities say Trump's recent indictment is no basis to delay their efforts. Uh, Duncan Carling is the attorney leading the effort to strip Eastman's law license said the push for delay is unjustified. Eastman, he said, has been aware of his criminal exposure for years, so much so that he's already asserted his Fifth Amendment rights in appearances before the House January 6th Select Committee and Fulton County prosecutors investigating the same matters. Um, so, I mean, they clearly look at it as nothing more than an opportunistic attempt to delay the decision and 
uh, Eastman State Bar case, as the situation with regard to potential criminal charges is the same today as when the trial started. <laughs> All right, we'll let you know what the bar decides as soon as we know. Uh, also, um, Rudy Giuliani waiting for disbarment results there. And Jeffrey Clark, his disbarment hearings are going forward as well. I, we might see some filings from him along the same lines. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, everybody, we just got a little bit more left to, to talk about, but we have to take a quick break. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody. Last story of the day. It's not Jack Smith, but a different special counsel. Welcome special counsel David Weiss. He's a U.S. attorney appointed to investigate Hunter Biden and has been for the last five years. Um, and he requested, he made a request to Merrick Garland the, this past Tuesday to be appointed special counsel. And today in a statement, Merrick Garland granted that request. Garland pointed out that all prosecution and declination decisions must be included in his final report, which I like. Uh, David Weiss then filed a very fast motion to dismiss the tax charges without prejudice against Hunter Biden, stating the case is likely heading to trial in another jurisdiction, possibly California or D.C., and that the plea agreement discussions had reached an impasse. Now, the judge during the hearing had asked about possible FARA charges. That's a, you know, a Foreign Agents Registration Act. Um, so that could be potentially in the future. 
Uh, Biden's lawyer made a statement that said, in part, it's hard to see why David Weiss would propose such a resolution, a plea agreement, in the first place, if, if there were other offenses he could have successfully prosecuted, and we are aware of none. With this, uh, with this at an end, my client will have resolution and will be moving on with his life successfully. Uh, Andy, I'm okay with this. I think it, I don't know if it's absolutely necessary, but if given what the House Republicans are doing, first of all, they called for a special counsel uh, vehemently. Uh, and then they said this was a sweetheart deal. Uh, and then they alleged and brought in some whistleblowers from the IRS to allege that David Weiss wanted to be special counsel, but was denied by Merrick Garland. And David Weiss and Merrick Garland both said that's, you know, that's poppycock. That's <laughs> my nice way of saying BS today. Uh, and so now we've got, for me, this, like, think about this. If if David Weiss had come, said, come to Merrick Garland and said, we're at an impasse. We can't reach a plea agreement here because we, we might have future charges. We just don't know yet. Uh, I want to be special counsel. And if Merrick Garland had said no, uh, I think that that would be a heavier political consideration on his part than just allowing it to happen. Um, I, uh, But I also understand the contention that a lot of people are making, like, don't we have enough special counsel people already? Um, you know, right now, President Biden is in talks with special counsel Robert Hur in the Biden handling of classified information um, case. And that's, or investigation, I should say. And that's because they're talking about, you know, interviewing President Biden for that case. So I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I understand people's frustration, but I don't see the harm of appointing a special counsel, uh, appointing him special counsel here. I mean, statutes of limitations still exist in this world. And, uh, you know, a lot of this, anyway, I don't know. What do you think? You know, I think when it comes to questions of appoint or don't appoint the special counsel, it's helpful to remember that the entire issue is really just about public relations and to a lesser extent politics. So there's nothing there's no legal authority that a special counsel has that a US attorney doesn't have. It's not really like anything they can do that a US attorney couldn't do. Um, yeah, they do have a little bit more, uh, they have a little bit more independence, so they don't have to come back and kind of mother may I the same sort of things that and, and that a U.S. attorney would have to do before they uh, indict someone on particular charges. Not all charges, only some charges, like things like terrorism and big public corruption stuff. So it's done because the attorney general determines that it's necessary for the public's perception of the investigation. It's good for the department because it puts the department at a little bit of an arm's length from an investigation that could be seen as being political. Um, it's good for the investigation to have that uh, greater appearance of um, independence. Um, but it's not it's not like, oh, we have to have a special counsel because nobody here at DOJ can do this work. So that, so ultimately, the decision that he's got to make is the one that you outlined, right? What, what turns this thing around, I think what makes it different today than it was a week or so ago, is the fact that the plea negotiations have now collapsed. So the plea that was so controversial that so many Republicans were complaining about is not going to go forward, which then means that the underlying charges, the two tax-related charges and the potential charge on the gun, uh, the gun application, now have to be resolved. If, if they're not going to be pled to, they have to be resolved at trial. So those 
that could go as one case. It could go as two separate cases. More likely it would go as two separate cases in two different locations. So it's all of a sudden gone from a pretty quiet thing that was about to be finished into a more complicated two different trials in different jurisdictions. And under that scenario, it sounds like the US attorney came in and said, you know what, if I'm going to have to take these things to trial, it would be better if I had uh, the independence and the distance of a special counsel. How, as you said, how does Garland disagree with that? It's frustrating because to some extent, it confirms some of these false narratives like, see, we told you there's really something here. You know, there's smoke, there must be fire, that sort of thing, which ultimately, I don't, I don't believe we've ever, ever seen any evidence that would indicate that. Um, and it may drag these things out a, a little bit longer, but they were, they were looking to go longer now anyway, if they're heading to trials on these two uh, previously almost resolved issues. So I don't think Garland had a choice. Um, whether it's good or bad for the politics, I really don't know. That's not my thing. Um, I understand that you know, no matter what you do on this case, half the country is going to hate it and the other half is going to love it. And, and those halves might flip back and forth. Yeah. And uh, I think my favorite uh, tweet summing this up is from my friend Jeff Tiedrich, who said, the guy who was in charge of not finding anything serious on Hunter Biden is now super in charge of not finding anything serious on Hunter Biden. Uh, but we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, we'll cover it. Uh, I at when the plea agreement fell apart, I was like, "All right, cool, take him to trial." That's what I would say. We, you know, take my chances with a Farah indictment, uh, with the with the track record on on those charges in in recent history. If I were Hunter Biden's lawyer, I'd be like, "Sure, bring it on." Um, and yeah. So that seems like what is what is happening. Or uh, we'll or the it. or the two misdemeanor tax charges, right? You want to take mm -hmm. me to trial on two misdemeanor tax charges, charging me with failing to pay taxes that I've already paid? I mean, yeah, <laughs> convince a jury to convict me of a crime for not paying something that I did in fact pay. It's not a great case. No, it's not. I think we have another Durham case in the works, but yeah. we'll see what happens with it. All right. Uh, listener questions. Do we have a question today? Oh, by the way, if you have a question for us, you can send it in to us at hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Just make sure you put Jack in the subject line. Andy, what's our question today? All right, AG. So the question this week comes from Travis. Travis raises a really kind of uh, interesting issue here. He says, regarding the charges under 18 U.S.C. 241, which is uh, the, the charge that's been brought against Donald Trump for essentially depriving people of their constitutional rights, um, Travis says, I had a jury selection question. If all U.S. citizens are considered victims, how can we also be impartial jurors? Are the victims all U.S. citizens or is it limited just to those that voted in the 2020 election or just anyone of voting age at that time? So, yeah, I think in principle, uh, Travis, you raise a good issue. We are uh, under this theory, uh, which is only one of many theories, but this theory we are if you voted in the 2020 election, and I guess if you voted against Trump and for Biden, then you are potentially a victim of this charge. But I, my, I think my response to you would be not really a problem because essentially the question for serving on a jury is not, do you have any connection to the defendant or to the charge or to the law enforcement folks involved or the prosecutors, but even with that connection, can you still be impartial? That's the question that we ask of people before they serve on a jury. 
And I think it's, even though you could end up with a jury of 12 people who voted for Biden and then theoretically would be victims of that 241 charge, I think you can probably find 12 Biden voters or 11 or 10 or six or whatever it is uh, who say, yes, despite the fact that I may have been deprived of my constitutional right to have my vote accurately counted, I think I could still serve impartially. Uh, yep, very good point. And, you know, all of these federal cases are the United States versus. So that's kind of where we are with that. Thank you for that question, Travis. Really good question. Uh, again, if you have a question, send it to us. Hello at com, and just put Jack in the subject line. It has been a heck of a news week, even though we didn't get any new indictments. It's still put in <laughs> over an hour on this show with filings. So thank you so much, Andy, for doing this show with me. Everybody will be back next week to see what's new in all the special counsel news on Jack. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. We'll see you next week. M-S-W Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.